Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. everyone and welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan and today we're looking at minutes 35 through 42 which begin with rats on the oar of the rowboat and end with Bond enjoying the performance of a belly dancer at a quote unquote gypsy encampment. In between Bond gets a first glimpse of Tanya through a concealed periscope below the Russian consulate Kareem takes Bond out of the city, fearing Kralenku the bomber will try to kill them again, and they are welcomed at the gypsy camp, not knowing Kralenku is indeed on their tail. And today we welcome writer Christy Henry, uh, who is also in the early stages of producing a documentary about the Roma in America. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So do you have any um, association with uh, James Bond films? So I was actually thinking about this as I was kind of preparing for this, and I realized that really my first introduction to James Bond was the GoldenEye uh, Nintendo 64 video game. So I hadn't <laughs> even watched the movie, but I went over to my neighbor's house frequently, and he was always playing that game, and so that's my very first association with James Bond. So when you saw a James Bond movie, you were surprised everybody didn't have these gigantic heads. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, yeah, nearly as scary either. <laughs> <laughs> um, had you seen From Russia With Love before we asked you to come work on this? I hadn't seen it before. I don't think I had seen anything prior to Casino Royale. Wow. Right. All right. So um, <laughs> I, before we get into talking about the Romani people and talking specifically about these minutes, what what struck you? Um, I guess I was fascinated by the way that the relationship with like the bond women has kind of evolved from where we are today and going back to from Russia with love, there's a different feeling to the way he relates to the women in that film. There certainly is. Yes, that's very true. Did you find the film compelling or, or did it bore you or would it feel slow? I anticipated it feeling slow and it really didn't to me. Like I thought that there was enough you know, movement from a pacing standpoint and intrigue that it, you know, kept me entertained the entire time, even through the problematic parts. <laughs> well, yes, the problematic parts. And that's part of why we're here doing this, because the movies and the books stay the same and the world changes and we change as we go back and, and revisit them. And certainly what we're going to talk about today is this the issue of the representation of the Roma people and who the Roma people are. And I thought I would just sort of start with just this quick description from the book that kind of says a lot. Um, this is Bond's first meeting with Vavra, the head of the, head of the encampment. And uh, I'm quoting Fleming here. The gypsy was an imposing theatrical figure in Macedonian dress, 
white shirt with full sleeves, baggy trousers, and laced, soft leather-top boots. His hair was a tangle of black snakes. A large, downward, drooping black mustache almost hid the full red lips. The eyes were fierce and cruel on either side of a syphilitic nose. The moon glinted on the sharp line of the jaw and high cheekbones. His right hand, which had a gold ring on the thumb, rested on the hilt of a short, curved dagger in a leather scabbard tipped with filigree silver. Hmm. So there you have it. Like that's, This is the image that we've been seeing in cinema since I probably... Hunchback of Notre Dame, the silent film, you know, which had these characters in the in the Victor Hugo source material, and then Maria Ospenskaya in The Wolfman, the the woman who tells Larry Talbot that he's been bitten and aware by a werewolf and is going to turn into one, and then I think I remember a film called um, King of the Gypsies that Eric Roberts was in, which was in the nineteen seventies, and again leads leans into all of the cliches of vagabonds and you know dangerous wanderers and and uh, sort of a strange cult-like civilization living in this liminal space outside of society a little more sympathetic treatment comes with robert duvall's film angelo my love uh and then there was a british film called traveler and emir kusarika made time of the gypsies which won a lot of awards and and uh but it it too contains problematic, you know, references and representations. So, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the of the Roma people? I can. Um, so, right now, the like leading theory is that in around the 11th century, the Roma people left India um, and they traveled to Egypt, and then they traveled north into Europe, and so that. Egyptian component is where the name Gypsy came from and it was definitely like imposed from an outsider perspective That's not something that the Roma people used to identify themselves And then over the course of the next hundred years they kind of spread throughout Europe so you have enclaves in Turkey and Bulgaria and the Balkans and then Italy has their own like group of people there are specific groups in Finland that have their own cultural identity and the UK. And so in each country, you have all of these like um, specific cultural ties. And so they all, um, they have the nomadic component to their culture. But even in that regard, in Turkey specifically, um, they were uh, given their own province. And so the Turkish Roma people actually don't have as much of a nomadic component to them. And so it was interesting to see, I guess, in this film where they have the Vardo, which is like the wagon, right, that right. we identify with Roma culture, but really that's not part of the Turkish Roma culture. And so we kind of have taken more of this like Balkan and the United Kingdom idea of what Roma people look like and just shoved it into Turkey, which I thought was kind of an interesting, like, again, feeding into that like stereotype. Um, and I guess thinking from a historic standpoint, because there was always this degree of like outsiderness, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of racism 
toward the Roma populations to a point where in several countries throughout history it has been punishable by death to just be Roma in that culture or in that country, I mean. And so um, you can kind of see the pinnacle of this historically during World War II when uh, the Nazis came to power and the Roma people were the only other people group outside of the Jewish people to be kind of on the docket for extermination entirely. Um, and so in the, during the Holocaust, between one and two million people died um, in- Roma, Roma people. Roma people, right, not, yeah. yeah. Um, right. And so that was when you think that right now they estimate they're probably around six million people. That's a tremendous amount of their population that was just, uh, you know, exterminated. Um, and because there's been this tenuous relationship between the um, people in the country, so the Roma people and the other people, you know, the English or the Croatians or whatever, there's a huge amount of distrust um, from the Roma toward, they, they call non-Roma gaje. Um, and so it's made relationships very uh, tenuous and continues to be so. Uh, in fact, last Saturday, there was a man in the Czech Republic who was killed much in the same way as George Floyd in the Czech Republic. And there's a huge, like, um, almost, uh, well, there's a racist component to his death. And so it's still ongoing today where it, there's the stereotypical understanding of who the Roma people are. And because of that, it feeds this cyclical nature of uh, harm toward them. I remember the first time I was in Spain, somebody pointed out across a, of all places, a bull ring. Look over there, you know, those are gypsies, said this Spanish person that I was sitting by. And there's a sort of casual racism in Spain anyway. And it was, uh, so that was really, really brought it home. There's also issues about just numbers, how many people are actually in Europe, because there's a big mistrust of the um, census and understandably so like it could be dangerous to identify yourself as roma so you don't so you don't put it on the census yeah you don't right <laughs> exactly so i'm curious does the um does that term gypped you know come from is that come it from does the word gypsy come yeah. from the word gypsy and it's that say like the stereotypical identification of the gypsy people being a thieving community. And so there's, um, a, it's difficult for Rome people to get employment because there's that stereotype and it does kind of create a lot of um, economic struggle for the Roma people. And because um, there is that racism, there are so many uh, communities in Europe where they're forced to live in kind of the most rundown parts of the city. So they struggle to have access to clean water, they struggle to have access to electricity, education. I mean, it's it's really kind of horrific the conditions that they're forced to live in because there's not an acceptance of their their culture. None of which was helped by the British TV series My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding and then the spin-off of that My Big Fat American Gypsy Wedding which ran for five seasons, a reality 
TV series that sort of leaned into all of these cliches and was, uh, you know, well, and they also ended in 2015. That television series doesn't um, address the fact that they're also they just combined. So you have Travelers Two, which is an entirely different like culture, right? So they're not even culturally or like ethnically, I guess, related to their own people, and they just smashed all of the uh, Traveler cultures together in that series and so you get this very broad stereotype of what it means to be you know a nomadic person i guess i also think at least in the united states a lot of the people i talk to don't even necessarily realize that roma people are people like there's been such a um appropriation i guess of the culture where you know gypsy clothing is very in or boho clothing is very in and so it's uh, almost like this um mythical way of yeah. being in the world instead of an actual like identity and ethnic experience right well, let, me, let me ask this question because this might show my ignorance of this subject which i have much of i'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot right now already uh, but when i was growing up the one person the one famous person that was always uh, referred to as a gypsy was Cher, right? And I think I thought that they just meant she was kind of a hippie-ish lady. And I'm not, and right now I'm not a hundred percent sure what her ethnicity is. As I think of this, I'm like, man, maybe I never learned the correct. Maybe the stereotype is all I've ever known about her. But were, was that an accurate? Were they referring to her in, in some sort of an accurate um, cultural way, or I don't know. I don't know that I have oh. the answer to that. That's my honest answer. I could try yeah. to look it up real quick. Um, but I think that also in the 60s and 70s, there was a huge um, kind of uh, adoption of the Roma aesthetic for yeah. women. And so I think that that's where you see some of that uh, appropriation really starts to take place, where the hippies also just said, you know, we're gonna be free and we're gonna travel. And, you know, you have that eroticism that's tied with like the Roma female uh, stereotype. And so right. I think with the free love movement, it could, it could be that Cher is Roma, but it also could be that, you know, she sang gypsies, tramps and thieves and she, dressed like a, a Roma woman and, and ran with it. So I think that's it's very telling that we don't know for sure, right? I think that's very telling of our culture's understanding of their culture, of that culture. So Well, she leaned into the Native American thing, too, and I have yeah. no idea whether she has Native American blood or not, but that was also part of that whole Billy Jack hippie yeah. thing where everything got sort of smashed together and appropriated. I remember we had a hippie store in my small town in Kansas called the Gypsy Wagon. I mean, it's so it was yeah. still all over like Instagram today. A lot of influencers are using Gypsy as, you know, this term to sell their their products instead of recognizing the ethnic connotation that comes with it. And the fact that for most, not all, but for most Roma um, communities, it's seen as a very like derogatory slur. Right. Even the there was an international organization that sort of made that very clear and made that statement that this this word will be seen as a derogatory word and, and is not going to be used. There's an International Roma Day, which is April 8th, which I just found out about. I didn't realize that. My wife's birthday. I'll have to clue her in on that. So I, I feel like I need to clear this up on the air before we get 
many people uh, probably giving us comments, but uh, Cher was, she's Armenian American. So her, uh, I knew this, her last name was Sarkeesian. I, I remember that now. But then again, in my ignorance, I don't know if that means <laughs> she's not Roma. You know what I mean? Uh, I assume there's a Roma culture in Armenia. There are, so, I mean, yeah. Um, but, but this information does not say that she's a that she's from Roma culture. So I think it might have been just an appropriated thing, like we were saying. I, I just find that interesting. How we, yeah, how muddled it is in our um, culture, <laughs> like this concept. I'm glad we're clearing it up a little bit on this episode, though. Yeah, and there's lots to talk about as we move through these minutes, um, yeah. and we'll see different different cliches and that are going to show up very quickly. Uh, I, I guess while 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 you address that, John, I'm going to clean something up from last week as well. Um, I'm I'm referred to the location of the first part of these minutes as a sewer, and it is not a sewer; it is a cistern, and it is this massive cistern, the Basilica Cistern, uh, which uh, gets the name from the fact that it was beneath a big public meeting space. It was not built by Constantine. It was built by Justinian. So we need to give Justinian a little props, you know, over over Constantine. And Fleming does mention the pillared cistern as being above them. So when they go through the tunnel in the book, they're actually going beneath that watery cistern that is ultimately used in the book as the main setting for the uh, access to the tunnel and the and the periscope so i will clean that up now that may make it even more complicated in terms of why there's rats in the cistern uh, unless they're just thirsty or something right um, but the in the book there is no cistern they are working through a tunnel filled with rats and bats like the beginning of raiders of the lost ark with all sorts of creepy crawly animals in there and and they're pouring out ahead of them and and some of that rat stuff will be then magnified later on in later minutes uh, in the movie well i have to say i you know it's funny that you mentioned raiders there because this immediately we get this first shot of the rats with sean connery right there it's hard not to think was there a connection when steven spielberg went to make uh, indiana jones and the last crusade and indy and um elsa go into the i'm probably going to get this wrong too like catacombs beneath yeah. venice yeah yeah and um it's full of rats right and she says oh if only your father were here his father played by sean connery but he would never go in there because he's ter- he terrified of the rats or what, do you think there's some kind of weird it seems like there's got to be some kind of connection <laughs> he's kind of meta doesn't and spielberg's it? a giant bond fan so it's almost like they thought oh wouldn't it be funny if we said that James Bond was too scared of rats to go underground into this watery, <laughs> watery underground uh, system of tunnels. So anyway, it's the first thing that came to mind because I'd never really noticed those rats before. It's a real quick shot. Uh, I believe one, maybe two of them are actual rats and the rest of them are stuffed rats that are just floating <laughs> in the water. Yeah, sure. I, th- I think those are pine wood inserts for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll get some real rats from Spain later, later on. Uh, Young also mentioned in one of the commentaries the one that's harder to find that this was the first time that he noticed that Pedro Amandaras was having trouble and that he was got very frustrated by the fact that there was water dripping onto his suit and mm. he finally um, asked for a break and went away and came back uh, much happier and apparently he had gone and, and he had started taking morphine because the pain was so intense and he came back a much happier fellow uh, than he was at the beginning of that shoot and you can you can see him 
starting to limp and he's having a he's having a tough time uh, navigating the location stuff um, then we get into a set when we when we move into the um, periscope room right so I had the the pleasure of watching this with my husband and as we were watching this we got to this scene and he said oh Chekhov's rats and so you talk about the rats <laughs> in later minutes and that was a very satisfying payoff for him I think nice. Chekhov's rats that's, great. that's a Chekhov's new one. rat very good <laughs> did you notice this strange green light that hits them from the side when they walk into that periscope room no not really it's as outrageous as the pink light when the bomb goes off and I don't know what what's up with this but it's this weird 60s green that's kind of off camera and it's hitting them from the side and just giving everything a little bit of definition. It's very colorful. Oh, it makes 60s, no sense, but sixties green is my favorite shade of green. And you think <laughs> I would notice that you, you got to go but back and look, John. Maybe it's now the, uh, I did notice it didn't show up on some versions. It shows up on the new, the newest transfer. So oh, okay. you know, maybe it was, I don't know if they've done the 4k on these. We talk about this sometimes. I really want Yeah. I have seen a 4k of this. That's right. on streaming. Really think I just should own one. <laughs> so watching this low res video for the clips is—I've uh, maybe not seen as much as I should. Yeah, it's not as good. I should, yeah, I should get you a Blu-ray so you have that yeah. to give me the whole box set, Mitch. If you're going to do that, the whole box set. Yeah, okay, we might I'll, as well. We'll, we're going to talk about all these <laughs> movies, right? I'll get on that. <laughs> My first note about the Periscope Room is that as soon as they pull this Periscope out. <laughs> I'm immediately like, ah, oh, that's my, there's my James Bond. Now we're starting to get to where I, it's so silly in, in context with this movie, it's not out of place or anything, but it's starting, it's like a first real hint of that silliness that I enjoy later with, uh, uh, you only live twice and so on. It's completely absurd to, to suggest that they were able to install a periscope down here come on and it's uh, in the book too so i know it's, so, it's great so fleming's already pulling our leg with with it there the only problem i have with it is that they maybe talk too much in detail about other things later that make you go kick your head like well how in the world did they install this periscope if he doesn't even have plans of the building like what they just just drill, drill straight up it'll be fine uh <laughs> I, that, that's the only real problem I have with the whole scene is that I'm a little disappointed in Karen Bay for not already having the plans or for not thinking that he could probably figure out how to find him. So, oh, I wish I could get him, James Bond. Like, well, uh, try it. Why don't you try talking to somebody? Oh, I'll try that now. I'm like, you would have been way ahead of this, I think. And <laughs> it would have been, there's really no reason for that obstacle here. I think you just say, yeah, I've got the plans. Obviously, I built a periscope <laughs> into the basement of the building. But uh, it doesn't matter. It's so much fun. The idea of just looking up into the meeting room of your enemy or, well. He's so it's fastidious Cold War enemy, with his handkerchief. Still. Yeah. I, oh, I, yeah. He really makes sure it's the eyepiece is clean. Yeah. It's clean. And then he puts it over the handle and he uses it under his hand for the handle. And then Bond just steps up and like, just grabs it. Oh, yeah. doesn't care. <laughs> uh, the fact that they couldn't get sound is pretty interesting too. We can we can install this gigantic periscope, but yeah. unfortunately, we unfortunately, can't. Microphone technology. I don't know what they didn't make cords long enough yet. Uh, yeah, they could definitely <laughs> have a little like like a lav mic style mic on the end of that periscope if they could have a periscope. <laughs> yeah, you're right. They should be able to hear everything that's happening. That but it helps occur the to me. scene. It gives oh, the actors definitely. something to do. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, you have to translate. Oh, well, he's really giving him a good going over. You know, if we hear him yelling, then we don't need the actors to really react to anything, you know? Who spots the bad guy, though? That uh, who I thought that was interesting, too. What, that they had the tra- the handoff? Yeah. Kind yeah, of like, like, I, I can't, can't see anything. I can't see him. Then Bond gets up there. It's like, oh, there let he is. Let me, let me see if I can. Yeah, it's it's a little weird. It's like, get out of the way, old man. Somebody with some real eyesight here. Spot him. But yeah, making sure Bond's the one that uh, gets the big, I guess it's a big moment. It's not really a big moment or anything. It's just the scenes event is introducing us to this guy. And then I guess the next event is legs. Yes, but before we get to the legs, did anybody notice the Russian and who the Russian looks like? No, I didn't actually think about it. He looks like Khrushchev. Oh, okay. So, and go ahead. No, no, that's that's all. I just think well, that it pl- it places us in the you know who's in charge of Russia at the time, Khrushchev, and so they're going to make this Russian look like Khrushchev. I was thinking about that just in regards to them choosing the Bulgarian, right? Like, so during the Cold War, Russia and Bulgaria, you know, kind of had their partnership, and the United States had kind of a tenuous partnership with Turkey, and that's you know they were even talking about having Turkey be a part of NATO and all of this and so i was thinking about how bond has shifted over the decades and how bond's enemies really kind of shift as the political landscape shifts too and so in 1963 as you have that cold war building it makes sense that the bulgarian would be the definitely so tanya comes in right mm-hmm. it's not tanya no they went and found a model that they felt had superior legs to Daniela Bianchi. A leg model. You never see her face. Bond sees her face in the book. I mean, but he that you don't see her face. She's just a body. It's a little problematic, maybe. It is. Yeah. I guess I felt like, you know, in that regard, at least you get to see exactly what you're going to get from your female characters. Like, not only, like, he just flats out says, like, I'd love to see her in the flesh. It's, mm-hmm. There's nothing hidden about it. It she is, she is a body, and that's all she's gonna be in this film. And you know it from that scene, kind of on, right? Like she's just a pair of legs, and that's how she's gonna be. And using the term in the flesh versus in person, right? Clearly, there's more. It's a more implied in, within that term. Of course, that's just Bond. I mean, Bond is always going to try to get the, you know, every, things are building up nicely from where I can tell. All that's, that's just Bond. That's how he talks. He's always got to be a little cheeky with things. Well, there's this peep show quality to so much of the movie because later on we're going we're gonna to see something else going on behind the two-way mirror. And so everybody in this film is looking at everybody else. Rosa Klebb is looking at Tanya. Bond is looking at Tanya. So... The, as much as we talked with the previous guests about how the film really does embrace female desire in a way that a lot of movies hadn't done, it's still also very much giving us the male gaze and, yeah. you know, well, something for everybody. Well, and the framing on this scene is almost like a peephole because you are looking through that periscope mm-hmm. the whole time. So, you know, mm-hmm. you have a really reduced uh, ability to see beyond, you know, what they can see, I guess. Yeah. That being said, you know, no, legs with notwithstanding the you know implications of the of misogyny notwithstanding, 
uh, and I probably have mentioned this maybe when we talked about Hunt for October or anything, but just one of the tiny little simple pleasures I get out of movies sometimes is just looking through periscopes, binoculars, and scopes. There's something <laughs> about, I just love it when they frame a shot up as binoculars. Or Luke looking through the macro binoculars in Star Wars or, like I said, Hunt for October. I just love looking. It's just a dumb little real basic Movie pleasure to me when we cut to a shot of them looking through a scope of some kind. Movies do that well. Yeah. I mean, that's something we, we love about movies. Did you notice the last shot through the periscope? At the very end when Bond pulls away from it, there's this l really fast little whip pan to the left. And oh. it's like he's spinning the periscope. And so it just adds a little extra zoom to it as it cuts back to Bond stepping back away from the yeah. periscope. Nice. Yeah, just a detail that's they didn't have to do it, but it gives it a, a certain reality in that moment. Yeah. So we move to the road. There's a second unit shot now of the of a car driving toward us. It's day for night. The car has no headlights on. <laughs> hey, they're being secret. They're being stealth. They're that's being what, very. It's got to be what it is. That's how I'm explaining. Maybe. That. Mm -hmm. Maybe because they're going to turn the headlights on soon. <laughs> <laughs> for no reason whatsoever. They were being stealth before, but, and now but, they don't need to be. I don't know, this is Mitch. I'm trying to help day, these guys out. Second unit day for night, and depending upon the transfer, sometimes it looks like it's just a day shot, and yeah. others look a little better. And then we get another process shot um, with, the, with them in the car. I should point out my typical excuse for day for night is, you know, oh, no, I, I just assume it's very early in the morning. It doesn't float when there's parallel action. <laughs> Right. Like when we have this is happening parallel to another scene that we know isn't in the middle early in the morning, it's throws my excuse out the window. I always try to help these filmmakers out with these. things. It could I be wanna, dusk. Maybe. maybe dusk. The, yeah, maybe, maybe dusk. OK, just gone there down go. and they just haven't decided to switch on your headlights. It's maybe it's that time of year when you, you know, daylight savings has happened. You're not sure. You always forget. Oh, God, I forgot it gets dark so early. You know, maybe it's something like that. It used to be in Kansas that you didn't have to turn your headlights on until 30 minutes after sunset. I don't know if that's changed, but I just remember that from my driver's ed. Oh, yeah, test. there was a driver's ed thing. Yeah, but I think that you could get pulled over if it's too dark and you don't have your headlights and they're not going to care what time it is. But Gary Lisak said the sun went down. At... Anyway. Well, sorry. how much that's... work does this scene do of the two of them in the car? What does it, what does it do for us? I wasn't prepared to answer this question. Yeah. Maybe that's <laughs> well, because I I... No, it just kind of occurred to me like, okay, it's it's trying to set everything up. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, nobody's following us because I put two dummies in the back of the rolls and we're in a different car and now we're in a station wagon, so everything's good. And un But I would mention that the gypsies and the Bulgarians have a blood feud because we've all decided to use them as as proxies in this fight. So it's, you know, it's setting stuff up for us that, hopefully makes it all a little bit more understandable but we're we are led to believe that they have shaken the tail that nobody is on their tail so everything's going to be good so that would be the basic function of the scene because any of that exposition could have come in the previous scene probably yeah. like there's no real reason why it couldn't have come anywhere yeah, no, yeah that's true. Shake, I, I haven't i can't say that i've thought oh good thing i know that they shook they shook the tail because the End result is lots and lots of people show up and cause problems. So in about in about ten <laughs> seconds, right? So why do we from, care if they shook? The you tail cut from or that not? to a second day for night shot again with no headlights, right? And then hard cut to a car with headlights 
pulling into the to the camp, which is right. we are now on the back lot at Pinewood, where we have control over lighting, and we can actually probably they're probably shooting at night here now, right? Right, for sure. So that makes it more jarring the difference between the day for night shots and and this scene, yeah. And they were originally going to shoot all this stuff in Turkey, but they got into trouble with the Turkish government. In addition to to weather and some logistical issues for some of the stunt stuff that they wanted to do, there wasn't the boats didn't go fast enough and there's all sorts of other issues. But there was real pressure from the Turkish government not to show anybody living in any kind of poverty in Turkey. Mm. And also the whole thing with the representation of the gypsies in Turkey, right? They were under all sorts of political pressure, and I think they finally just said, between all of these other things and Pedro Amandara's getting sick, they said, we're moving, we're going We're going back to Pinewood. It's fine, you know, it looks fine. It's not, it's not like I'm going, this is obviously not Turkey. No. There's no point where I'm thinking that, you know. Yeah, I wondered if that house was left over from another movie or something. It, it, looks, it looks so weirdly out of, place or (laughs) i was still trying to figure out how that even functioned so they walk into the house and out into this encampment like i still don't understand the like geographical setup that's going on like what is that house why is it there did they just walk through it like i i thought that was a very odd structure to include in that scene yeah i agree it's very strange before we have time to even think about it, although we do get a quick shot of Bond getting out of the car, we're we're treated to the realization that there's a whole bunch of guys hiding in the shadows waiting for them. Can so I much for shaking the tail. Just mm-hmm. tell you how excited I was. So my undergraduate degree is in South Slavic languages and literature, and I almost never get to use it. And I understood <laughs> when the guy said, you'd be here in five minutes. So exciting. That's, that's what he says? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's great. Okay, that's cool. We are so lucky, like, between you and then Monica had translated some Russian for us in an earlier episode. This is gr- This is what our guests are supposed to be doing for right. us. They're all supposed to be translating the movie for us. Making us look better. All of you guests that didn't do that have let us down. <laughs> all right, so take that with a grain of salt because I did learn Croatian, Bosnian, and Serbian, and they, like, I could be... Wrong, but sounds the same. That's what it sounds like they say. So they're Bulgars speaking Serbian? What are they speaking? What language? Well, I assumed they were speaking Bulgarian, but I could understand enough of the words that maybe they just picked a a Slavic language and ran with it. Wouldn't be, wouldn't put it past the producers. Yeah, you can't, you can't trust movies to be accurate at all, like in what language people are speaking. Uh, there's supposed to be one, you know, uh, from one nationality and they're speaking who knows what or something that sounds kind of like it or whatever. Uh, yeah, you, but but it sounds like you got to lock on some real words here. So that's good. The camera does a beautiful push in through that arch. And I, I love it because it identifies the camera as this other character. And it's going to pay off in, in a couple of shots where we're going to realize, yeah, it is another character and it's telling us stuff that, nobody else knows so like as a suspense engine goes this camera is really helping us out because later on when those guys jump out of the truck and the truck drives drives forward the camera dollies right to reveal 
Red Grant in the shadows waiting. And so we know more than everybody. Bond doesn't know the Bulgarians are there. The Bulgarians don't know that Red Grant is there. Nobody knows that Red Grant is there. Mm-hmm. John, you're a Star Wars fan. Did you notice Red Grant's gun? It looks like Han Solo's gun. It sure does, doesn't it? It's a I believe it's the same. I mean, is that not what they converted into Han yeah. Solo's blaster? Yeah, German yeah. Mauser. Mauser. So somehow Red Grant is carrying a Mauser. Don't know yeah. why. Looks cool. It does look cool. Got to give it. I mean, I, I certainly loved when I was a kid and I liked toy guns. I liked the little clip. The little clip on the trigger uh, look was real fancy to me, probably because I loved Han Solo. <laughs> so I got to I got to take, you know, I can't remember if it was the I think it was the last episode. I kind of took Karen Bay to task over some of his, I don't know, uh, uh, social graces, <laughs> just so to speak. And he doesn't really do a lot to help himself in this scene either, for, in my estimation. He's a little, I mean, it's, to, I guess it's to be, it's kind of a given that he's going to speak down a little bit about this culture and, oh, well, it came on the wrong night. They're doing some weird gypsy stuff tonight. You know, it's kind of his attitude, but I'm particularly like taken aback by his insulting their liquor right to their face. Like what, what is this about? They hand him something here out of hospitality, take a drink of our liquor. And he's like, oh, Rocky, nasty stuff. Ugh. Here, drink it anyway. Ugh. Is he trying to impress Bond or something? Like, what is that? Like, why would he... He's an old family friend. Why is he being insulting to them? So, Rakia is like a moonshine, right? So, it's something that they're just making, like, at home, and it's super, like, hot, highly alcoholic, and it doesn't yeah. always taste particularly good. Like, it's... Right. It's just alcohol, like... Well, um, it's it's anisette, so... Actually, I mean, there's there's really good ones, too. Sure. And it's a lot like Sambuca in that it's the dregs of the wine process, like the pressing, it's the, the what do you call it, the pumice. Like grappa is another example of that. Only grappa is just straight pumice. They don't do anything to make it taste better. It's like fuel. But that grappa is stuff that they give you in, in high-end Italian restaurants as a digestif. So it's not trash. It's not nasty. I mean, it is so- to some. I guess I assumed that that's just kind of leaning into these, like, the stereotype of these Roma people being drunk and, you know, they don't really have a standard for what they're drinking as long as it does what they want it to do. Right, and which is exactly what the movie is doing. But I don't understand why he's doing it. He should be, thank you so much for your gracious offer of this alcohol i don't know why it's just a strange line to come from this guy and he's an old family friend has he really ingratiated himself with these people in this way maybe they like it. maybe they like his <laughs> oh, here comes Gary to insult us we got to keep him around <laughs> well i have noticed that in the book they drink rocky in kareem's office first so they have that's there's two appearances of okay. it so he has it there and in that instance fleming says bond drank the Rocky, which is identical to Uzo. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because, you know, what you were saying, Christy, about it being, did you say, what did you say, what word I, did you use? I said Rakia, but that's probably Rakia? just the Balkan. Yeah. So. Right. And so maybe there's a, maybe, so there's all different degrees of the, of the stuff, I guess. I mean, it's, but it it's is, a very it common. Is Uzo, it is Anisette based, right, John? Yeah. So it's an, so in France, I guess you'd call it an Anisette and in Italy, they call it Sambuca and then. It's just a common Mediterranean liqueur. I mean, it's, and like I said, in Italy also they have grappa, but grappa, the difference is the anise. So they'll, 
they distill it down a couple of times with the great pumice and then they add anise stars, you know, to make it not taste like to smooth it out. It gives it, and also it gives it, well, I think the pumice itself gives it kind of a cloudy look as well, but the anise gives it it, a little bit more of a creamier texture than grappa is like straight jet fuel. And you can cut the stuff with water like absinthe and you you can cut with water if you want to. I mean, absinthe, you have to. You drink straight absinthe, it will, it yeah, will, burn, absinthe. It will burn your throat I, out. Yeah, but, I've, I'm trying to think. I think I've there's certain uh, absinthe I think I've just taken a straight shot of. But usually, yeah, you drip you drip the water through the sugar with absinthe. Do, how, but, how are we all on these um, licorice-tasting drinks? Do we do we like them or do we not? I Quick hate poll. licorice, and I love all these things. Uh, it's you hate the licorice, thing. but you love all of those. I've That's always so hated like licorice, the licorice jelly belly surprise you get at the movie theater when you get the multiple. It's always like, oh dang, I got to get another one. But I love sambuca and I love anisette. Uzo, I, I love uzo. What uzo, about you, Christy? I, are you on this? I love black licorice, and so anything with the anise flavor works for me. I'm I'm happy. Yeah, it's it's very strange. I don't. Maybe it's the phoniness of the. Like I, the real anise flavor that you get from the liqueur is different from the f- phony licorice flavor you get from a Jelly Belly. And I can't say I've eaten a really good piece of licorice in a long time because I just assume I hate it. So oh, this John. is a huge tangent. I'll be really quick. But no? they've done studies like in the hospital with newborns and mothers who ate black licorice. They can let the newborn smell licorice and they have no response. And mothers who didn't eat black licorice, it will like upset the baby to the point that they like cry and try to get away from that flavor interesting so wait so, so john you have a conversation to have with your mother sometimes <laughs> oh yeah i think my mom hates black licorice i'm go. trying to remember yeah i think that so it's a, it's a genetic thing like cilantro maybe or like, an exposure like an in right, utero exposure exposure yeah interesting well i didn't expect to learn so much about licorice today it's also a setup for a joke because later Bond is going to say, "Well, I'll take care of this filthy stuff," and right. and drinks out of the bottle. So there, there's some of that. But the remarks about "I hope you're fine with eating with your fingers" that's from Fleming, and yes. then Fleming goes even further with "You must eat with your right hand, not your left hand. The left hand is not for eating." Blah blah blah. Um, and Bond almost, you know, quickly shifts his left hand to grab a glass or something. He's mm-hmm. about to eat with it. So you know, once again, it's this Ian Fleming's. Um, uncivilizing yeah. the people around, around yeah you almost want the point of view like the periscope the point of view shot of them looking down their noses at, at, you know, <laughs> through the nostrils the way that the condescending <laughs> tone yeah it's you want see i don't know i mean i think if you if you have this exact same setup now karen bay is probably celebrating their culture right he's like Oh, I can't wait for you to meet my friends. They there's hardy people and saying things like that. I'm kind of like not sure why he's not that way even then. Yeah, it well, just given how much life he loves, him. and everybody talks yeah. in the previous week we were talking about how he's just the sun shines. You know, he carries the sun with him, and you would think he'd be like, "It's time to party, James. This is going to be but, great." But the last 15 minutes or so, he kind of comes off as a dick. Like I've no, I, I don't. His character kind of takes a weird turn where I'm like, wait, at first I liked this guy and everybody said he was a good guy. And now I think he's kind of a jerk. I don't know. I'm, I'm alone in this. Everybody always talks about how great of a character. And we talked recently about, is he the best partner that Bond ever had? And I just think like, I don't know how I feel about this guy. I'm sorry. So this setup about 
people fighting, girls fighting to the death of to win the hand of some. It's all just a complete construct, right? Oh yeah, it's a big male this fantasy. Is phony, right? Correct. I actually, I was so people aren't fighting to the death over you know who's going to marry the the chief's son. I also just thought it was fascinating to see, kind of almost like the stereo like symbols that were put into this encampment you have the fire going you have the horses you have the vardo you have the dancing and the music and so many like just cultural icons shoved into this scene with really no purpose other than to say like this is what it means to be roma so you have the horse husbandry and there is like an important relationship between the Roma people and horse husbandry, but it's been taken to this like extreme where the horses don't even serve a purpose in this scene other than to just be a signifier for the cultural, you know, um, building, I guess. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we come to this dancer who pops up into frame with this magnificent flourish and I'm absolutely fascinated by how much time we spend watching her dance. There's a full minute and all she does is dance and all the guys do is look at her. I remember seeing this as a little kid and I think maybe it's the first time that I had seen that much skin and a belly dancer doing that, you know, and it was, it was really confusing and fascinating all at once i cannot believe how much time they spend to just looking yeah it is a lot of time i guess it's it's the genre we're in the bond movie we're gonna stop and gawk at a woman for some period of time and this is i don't know i've, I've were there examples i'm trying to think of anything before this where I'm like here's a belly dancer in a movie i mean i'm sure there was uh, I'm right. sure there was too, and um, I know that she had danced—not its belly dancer, but she had danced in the in the days of Wine and Roses. Um, mm -hmm. We had already seen her body in the titles, so this is the same actress that is in the titles where she's dancing. But it seems to be something that is very important to everybody involved, and we'll get to in a minute because we cut away from it. But before she gets to Bond. But I just wanted to remark that it's sort of like there is nothing moving forward in the story at all mm. for, for a solid minute except the pure visual pleasures of watching. It also falls very squarely within the Roma stereotype for women, right? You have these exotic, erotic dancers, which is, again, I, I guess I was really taken aback by how they had her dressed. Like, why... Why is this woman wearing sequins? That's not, you know, standard in terms of culture like that. That's far more into like being in a strip club than it does in a Roma encampment. And then I thought that her bottom of her skirt being so see-through was kind of interesting because traditionally Roma women wear these full circle skirts because the like bottom half of your body is seen as like it's taboo for people to see it so for so much of her leg to be showing all of the time seems very uh, removed from like the actual culture and what uh, Roma women are trying to do with the way that they dress and then even she you know she has the little scarf tied in her hair 
which is interesting, but in traditional Roma culture, you have the diclo, which are like ribbons that have like coins on them and unmarried women wear those. And then once they get married, they wear the scarf around their head. Mm -hmm. And so she falls into neither. Is she married? Is she not married? We can't tell. It doesn't matter because that's not, I mean, obviously, you know, when you see the way that the men are reacting to her, that's not why she's there. That's not the purpose that she fills in this scene. But it's just fascinating to see how, I guess, um, stereotyped her dress even. Like, it's not culturally accurate at all. Right. And a lot of, we talked earlier about how um, people don't identify as Roma on the census because they don't want to be identified because a lot of terrible things have happened from different European governments in terms of how they treat the Roman people. So you don't necessarily see as much of that currently in the culture, in the way they dress, because they're trying to blend in more. But there's still a lot of that, um, I guess, over-sexualization of Romani women. And it's, you know, it starts kind of, well, all the way back to, you were talking about Victor Hugo. I, it's it's always Right, been, Esmeralda right, dances, yeah, right? In yeah. the culture, and it's this, this really... Um, I guess white or European male understanding of what these women are doing instead of understanding from more of like a, a cultural and as part of the Roma community, how those different pieces of, of um, dress have meaning and reason for what they're wearing and the dancing they're doing. I read somewhere that the roots of flamenco in Spain, it, is connected to the Roma people, something that we totally just associate with now we associate with Spain. So it's weird, like I didn't look up belly dancing and what the tradition of that is and what people that is associated with. But I just think that's interesting. Well, after a full minute, we cut away. A full minute carried by only four shots, by the way. There's a there's two sizes of her and two sizes of Bond and Kareem at the table, a, a wide shot and a medium shot, and that's it. Then we cut away to somebody else is watching. So she's got a lot of attention. <laughs> One of the guards, is, is instead of doing his mm -hmm. job, is clearly watching her. Yep. And that's when Kralinku pops up and uh, throws a knife. And I don't know if you noticed the sound effect, but that sure sounds like a bow and arrow sound effect to me. <laughs> it, yeah. it whooshes and thuds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and he—I uh, don't know if I—if I think he doesn't seem to take any great pleasure in it. I, you know, it, it's set up earlier that he takes pleasure in killing. But it's like I kind of want to see him like smile or something, just, just pay off that line. But then he's ready to throw another one. He's yeah. very ready. Yeah. He's like, okay, if this guy comes at me, I've got another one ready. It's a little bit. It's a little bit strange. It kind of gives the, you almost wanted to be a little cooler about it, and because uh, it's kind of goofy how he's dancing around with another knife until that guy falls. Or cut down. to his disappointment, like wah wah. I oh, mean, I, I was, wanted to throw the other. I knife. wanted to throw the other one. Double my pleasure, <laughs> with two knives. Well, yeah, so that this guy is sure when does you get pay. That. I, Go ahead, John. I was, I was just going to say I like it in f films. Okay, I say I like it, but it's just a a classic trope of the a guard or someone paying the price for not doing their job. He could have easily just been guarding and gotten killed by this guy because this guy's probably much better at, you know, 
uh, and everything than this guy. But I like that it's like, uh, no, no, he was, if he would have been doing his job, maybe he would have lived. It's always, I guess, I kind of like that added little flavor of he paid the price for his incompetence there. Um, this, is, of course, does not carry over into the, my real world feelings about people. It sounds like I'm being kind of ghoulish, but um, it is a classic trope. But this is the great double whammy where we see the bad guys, we see they've made their move, and it's only then that we find out that Red Grant is there as well. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that as far as ginning up the suspense, it's pretty amazing. And after you see Red Grant, we cut back to the dance again, back to the wide shot of her. And it is interesting if you want to be all like, I don't know, Eisenstein about it. Her dancing now, even though it's the same shot, has a different meaning than her dancing before we knew the bad guys were about to make their move and and that Red Grant is there. But another almost 40 seconds of dancing as she makes her way over to Sean Connery and moves in close. And so uh, what do we think Bond, what, what do we make of this performance of what Connery is doing and, and what James Bond is thinking in this moment? Well, I think my impression of it was that he's very comfortable with this. Like, he's like the guy in the scene in the strip club where there's like three guys getting lap dances and they're all wide-eyed and like, oh, and he's the guy that's had a thousand lap dances. That's what I kind of got from it. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but it's just like, yeah, we're going to show how cool Bond is uh, when any woman is near him, when he's totally 100% comfortable in any situation and with women in any stage of disrobing, you know, it's it's not going to bother him. He's always cool. I don't know. Did you have another? Chris, did you have have any any response to this moment? I guess the thing that I kept thinking as I was watching this is like, why him? Right. So they show you have the women who are sitting at the table and they're kind of, you know, snapping along and you have the men that are playing the instruments and sitting on the dance floor in the previous part. Right. And then we cut back to this scene and she is just drawn to him. Is it because he's British? Is it because he's wearing the suit and no one else is? Is it like just because he's the guest? And so this is how they're like greeting the guest. But like she's so close to his face like the fact that they don't end up kissing is you know just it's just happens by millimeters um and so I guess I wasn't maybe thinking about it as much in terms of like how he's responding but what is it that's drawing this woman to him specifically like I guess it kind of shows you know that that un resistible charisma that bond has because she can't stay away from him yeah i 100 think that's what it is it's this is a james bond movie we've always got to be building james bond up uh so of course he's going to be the one like in a room full of or an area full of men he's going to be the one that's the most magnetic always maybe she's just glad not to have to do this for kareem bay again for the nine millionth time <laughs> he's always he's always insulting me while i'm dancing so he's what you wore sequins again this week? Those, those ghastly sequins that you're wearing. I don't want to be another one of his nine <laughs> wives or however many right. wives Kareem. Well, yeah, let's not even talk about how he treats women that he's got, is about to sleep with. <laughs> but I mean, all that aside, Connery is hilarious. Like there is something like that guy. There is always something going on with him, and even if you don't know what's going on, just the way he kind of leans in and doesn't give her any 
emotion on his face, but you know, like the wheels are always turning. I think that that's why he's a such a great movie star is because you just feel him. He, it's just he really is one of those actors that just screen actors that just amazes me every time. And then the dance is over, mm-hmm. and she sashays away, and we get to watch her walk away because yeah, that's what we're here for, right? I guess. And that's yeah. the, that brings us to the close of these minutes. Yeah. Christy. Yes. Any final thoughts about where we are, where we're going? Well, so in watching it, like, I think you guys are getting into even more interesting Roma representation coming up with the two women and their fight and the way that they need, you know, the the white British man to step in and navigate that for them because apparently there's not anyone within that encampment who's capable of doing that. And I guess looking forward, if you're allowed to do that, I still think about like traditional Romani modesty and those full circle skirts and the fact that when it comes time to fight, those women pull those skirts all up high and tighten them so you have all of their legs showing. Like it's just fascinating to see almost how little uh, regard, I guess, is given for how how women in these cultures, you know, see themselves and how they want the world to see them. That is a great note to go out on. Yeah. Um, thanks very much for joining us for this. Hope you had fun. We had we had a good time. Was thank you for having me. We we've learned a lot, and uh, maybe this will make the next problematic section. Uh, it's not going to make it less problematic. It's just, <laughs> gonna, I mean, it's no. just there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week on w- 007 by 7. You can find us on Twitter at 007 by 7 podcast or at Alien Minute Pod. If you still want to follow our Alien Minute Twitter page, we're also on Instagram. And our Facebook page is always pretty active. We get a lot of fun bond behind the scenes stuff over there from time to time. And, of course, we love to hear your thoughts on what we're talking about. So come on over and visit us there. But uh, yeah, that's going to do it for this week, and we'll see you next week.